Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today is episode 42. I'm your host, Dylan Sessler, and today we're going to be talking with a very special guest today. Uh, there is one thing I need you to do before we get into that, and that is follow, subscribe, like, hit the bell notification, wherever you're following, do all the things that matter there. Now, today, my guest has a remarkably profound story, one of hardship, confusion, and most importantly, one that showcases the true indomitable will for a human being to survive and continue to work through adversity. In the 2000s, my guest found himself gaining a lot of weight to the point where he maxed out at 340 pounds. He followed a number of different programs to get himself down to 280 pounds, but in 2009, it all seemed to be for nothing. He found himself on permanent medical leave because he was thought to be passing out randomly. It turns out, his heart was stopping randomly and was found to be clinically dead more than a dozen times. Now, I won't spoil too much of this story so he can tell you in his own words, but he is currently writing his memoir, A Summer I Died 20 Times, which says a lot to you. I'm excited to share with you, Fred Rutman. Fred, how are you? I'm great, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Fred, uh, I mean, you got to start with a story. I mean, there's, there's so much more I could, I could, I could give you a, a four, four or five minute bio and still not even get close to what this story mm. has in, in, in store for you. So do me a favor and do my audience a favor and give me an understanding of what happened, right? Give me the context, give me where you, where you went and kind of bring me up to where you are today and, and what you're dealing with now. Okay. I think I'm going to go into the way, way back machine. Yeah. And we're going to start when I was born. And um, I didn't learn about this until I was in my mid-30s. But the doctors believe I had a stroke just before or just after I was born. And, wow. you know, I'm just from that era when, you know, teachers didn't recognize things, parents didn't recognize things. And I had a whole bunch of mental and physical impairments that just weren't addressed, even acknowledged. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't know I was fighting a whole bunch of battles that that needed to be fought until my mid thirties. Can I, can I, so, can I interrupt real quick? Sure. Did you, did you ever have feelings, right? No one ever told you, but did you ever have feelings of like, there's something wrong in here? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I knew things were wrong with me like I knew I was legally blind in my left eye but no doctor ever could tell me why your eye is perfect but yet you can't see out of it weird you know so I'd get and then there's no follow-up or anything like this yeah um I knew there was something wrong with the entire left side of my body um but I could never articulate it I knew my memory was different than everybody else's, but who do you take that to? Right. And, and say, you know, my memory is different than yours. Well, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what, what I've learned since is I, I have no ability to visualize. So it's very difficult for me to retain visual clues. Interesting. Um, so, you know, if I said to the average person, I want you to visualize your favorite ice cream cone and see it dripping down the cone and onto your hand. And, you know, 
I, I can't even do a stick figure version of that. Wow. Um, and it leads into a whole other things like face blindness. If your audience is familiar with that, you know, you see somebody, you know, and you just don't recognize them. Even if they just do a minor adjustment to the way they look or the setting you're seeing them in. Sure. Um, I used to um, work for a financial services company and I would spend two, three hours with a couple at their dining room table and have deep conversations with them about their family and their finances. If I saw them 20 minutes later in the mall, I'd have no idea who they were. Wow. And then, you know, some factoid would come up and, uh, you know, they'd mention where they lived or that crazy lamp they had, that sort of stuff I seem to remember. Yeah. But who they were, I mean, yeah, it's torturous going through life like that. Absolutely. I can imagine. I can imagine how mm -hmm. difficult that would be. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Keep, keep, keep going with a story. If you don't mind, I'm, I just wanted to just really wanted to understand that a little bit more. Sure. Um, so when I was in my mid thirties, um, my life was going nowhere fast. And my sister started hanging out with this woman who was doing a PhD and this woman, I forget her name. Uh, her husband ran a clinic for people with, learning disabilities or brain impairments and she suggested I go there and get tested and that's how I found out that I have what's generally described as a right hemisphere dysfunction and I forget the exact number but my right hemisphere was performing at less than 50 percent of what it should have been so um, you know your hemispheres work opposite in yep. your body so the right hemisphere explained why my left side of my body wasn't working. And that's called hemiparesis. So paresis being paralysis, sure. hemi being half. So people get this one of two ways. Either they get it like a vertical split like I have or a horizontal split like upper and lower. Interesting. So, yeah. So, um, so I went through a whole bunch of treatment with this doctor and it helped a lot. But, you know, we're dealing with what they knew in the 1980s, which yeah. also wasn't a lot. And uh, I made a lot of progress from not being able to go to university to being able to get an MBA in finance and marketing. So it made a huge difference in my life, but I had no idea how much more I had to grow to, to get back to the, I guess, level playing field. And then I'm going to fast forward to 2009 um, when this current adventure started. And um, as you mentioned, uh, the doctors thought I was passing out randomly and misdiagnosed me for a number of months until they finally figured out that uh, I was actually dying. Uh, my heart was stopping. So your heart stops, your blood pressure goes to zero. You have no blood and oxygen in your brain. You collapse and you hit your head on whatever is the hardest object in the universe in the immediate vicinity. Yeah. So I sustained uh, a bunch of concussions, um, which just layered onto the existing brain damage I had. And uh, it got worse. And they 
finally figured out what was going on. It has something called a full heart block, which is all about the electrical system uh, in your heart. And it sends the little pulses to tell your atria and your ventricle to bump, to, to beat and sync mm -hmm. and uh, supply your body with what it needs. Uh, that system was dying in me. And so those signals weren't going through anymore. And thus my heart would stop. So I was clinically dead 20 times that we know of, that we have on record. Um, clinically dead means your heart isn't pumping and you haven't, you haven't taken any breaths for 30 seconds. Some definitions have it at 60 seconds, but so, yeah. yeah I feel like 30 seconds is long enough to, to, be, to yeah. be pretty bad. Yeah. So uh, we had a couple um, like three to five minute episodes because I was on a, an ECG type of monitor. So we yeah. actually had strips that, so that's getting into serious brain damage, not even factoring in the yeah. concussion parts. So what's amazing from all this is never once was I given an MRI or a CAT scan or any sort of neurological assessment even though they knew I was getting the shit beat out of me. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. and uh, I was so battered that, you know, you really lose the ability to advocate for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, being a, a combat vet, I, I guessing you see a lot of this mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Uh, and you don't even know what to ask for right. or who to ask for help because there's really no roadmap uh for anything like this you know if you want to yeah, if you want to have right. a fifth yeah it you know if you break your leg they know how to put a plate in there uh for this they they really don't know and they're just starting to scratch the surface and i had to rely on my own intuition to try and start healing um i'll tell you how badly my brain was battered um i've been learning hebrew since i was five and uh so i come from the orthodox jewish world and you know you do your daily prayers three times a day when my friends brought my prayer book to the hospital i started to do my prayers i could no longer read hebrew like it knocked an entire language out of my head have you since retained that or is that still? It's come back, but it's much weaker. I mean, I, mean, I lost a lot of everything um, wow. back then. So I lost language. I started slurring my words. I had depth perception problems, balance problems. I wasn't great at nonverbal skills before that. And um, I'd made a lot of progress, but it went back to... Um, you know, close to the starting point. Right. And there's just, you know, there's an anxiety that runs in the background that's always there. Yeah. And it, you know, because you don't know when you're about to drop dead. Right. And then they gave you, <laughs> uh, the, you know, they gave me a pacemaker to correct this. But then there were problems with the pacemaker. So yeah. you're supposed to be protected, but you're not protected anymore. Right. 
so it's just constantly churning in the background. Yeah, I, so I can't even I can't even imagine, you know, and, and not only that, but like your your inability to kind of communicate this stuff started so early on because of that potential stroke either before or after your birth, right? Of you know you had problems, you felt like you had problems, but how do you how do you express that to adults when you can't even, you know, you know, bring to bring to bear words and vocabulary at such a young age to express that stuff, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the challenge in many ways, you know, that that ultimately really what I see leads to such difficulties expressing yourself at older ages is that you never had the words early on. And if you never get taught the words, if you never get taught the, you know, how to express this stuff, the emotional expression, if you, you know, if you get um, in some ways uh, suppressed by other people, right. Mm -hmm. You know, you get told, Hey, there's nothing wrong with you. Right. Mm -hmm. But your body's like, yeah, yeah, there is, there's, there's definitely something wrong with me. Um, Like, how do you tell that adult that just told you, what you should feel that you feel different, you know, and that, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, I can imagine, you know, obviously with, with everything else you had going on before this stuff, how difficult it would have been, you know, especially with my own experience as a combat vet, right. It was hard enough without brain injuries to, to express Mm -hmm. what I had going on. And I can't even imagine how much more complicated that gets when you have that brain injury and you have that history of, not being able to understand how to actually express the very issues that you've had. It's, it's hard. It's extremely hard. Yeah. It's, it's also exhausting. Yeah. And you know, when you're exhausted and you don't even know you're exhausted because you're not really good at identifying your own feelings and emotions. Yeah. um, You know, people will see you as just acting out. Yeah. So I remember, uh, trying to learn script and I was at a parochial school so we do half a day Hebrew half a day English and a lot of the Hebrew teachers were former IDF so you know they're they're all battle-hardened people and you can't write between the lines and and they're just like you're not trying like (laughs) you know it never occurred to anybody that you know that there's something that's preventing you from writing between the lines. So, you know, you're just getting drill sergeanted all day and uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, it it wasn't the best experience. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense why, you know, like when you, when you look back and hindsight's 2020, isn't it? But it's, it's also, Mm -hmm. you know, it's also hard to be able to see that and recognize that's what I had to go through. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's harsh in many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. So you were, you were around, around 2009, obviously, um, you had all of this stuff happen. You got di- in, in some ways diagnosed, you got a pacemaker, then what happened? Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, they also diagnosed me as type two diabetic, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, most people don't even know if they're diabetic because there's no actual symptoms till the condition really digresses. And, uh, so they put me on like huge doses of insulin because my blood was apparently like corn syrup or something. So (laughs) it was just too thick to, to move around, but apparently that's unrelated to what caused my heart issues. 
and they still don't know. Um, one of the reasons they had such a hard time diagnosing it is it's a condition that usually presents itself in like 70 year olds. So, you know, I was in my mid forties, so they weren't looking for it. Sure. And that's one of the challenges in our medical system is that doctors sort of stake out their territory mm-hmm. and that's what they're going to solve because they had tested me. I don't know how many times for having a heart attack. Yeah. Um, and they didn't get the results that said I had a heart attack, but they couldn't move off that space. Yeah. And they just kept testing me for it over and over again. And nobody said, Hey, maybe there's something else we should be looking for. Yeah. And, and I think that's fairly common. Yeah. I, you know, what's, what's interesting. I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, when the body says no, no, I haven't. I recommend it. And, and why I recommend it is, is for this reason. The book itself is about understanding one of, of what you're exactly saying is that these doctors have this tendency to, you know, stay in their lane of, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so I'm going to only look at joints or, you know, how the body moves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you might have arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, um, but not know the cause, right? Because that cause is developed through, we don't know, right? Like then you, you have this idea where there's, there's systems, you know, cause the body is a massive system. It's not just bones. Yeah. It's not just muscles. It's not just organs. It's a system. It's a complicated system. And this is what this book is kind of really trying to say. Um, and stress is really behind is really potentially the cause behind a lot of these things. And, you know, it, it makes me think of like how this book talks that from day one, you were, you were engaged in stress, right? You, you mm-hmm. had a had you potentially had a stroke before after your birth. And so from that moment on, your body was in a constant state of stress, your body's not designed to be in a constant state of stress for long periods of time. It's designed to mm-hmm. engage in stress and then disengage in stress, right? You know, right. To, to reconcile and process these things. And if you are in a constant state of stress, you know, I think when the body or body keeps the score is, is another good book. If you haven't read that, um, when your body's in a constant state of stress, it creates over, you know, o- overactive situations in which, you know, the stroke certainly had an impact on, on your right hemisphere. Right. And then that put a certain amount of, uh, pressure or overexertion on other pieces of your body that had to make up for your, your right hemisphere's, uh, inability to work. Right. And I'm no doctor, but like you kind of put the pieces together and start understanding that that puts pressure on everything else in, Mm -hmm. in, unsustainable categories, right? Unsustainable situations. And so ultimately what that leads to is weirdly enough, unanswerable questions about where did this come from? Right. Mm -hmm. It leads to autoimmune disorders, uh, things like diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, you know, all of these physical ailments that kind of have no, uh, no beginning and we don't understand where they come from necessarily. Um, 
and it also what the book talks about is also like this this almost hyper conditioning of i have to do what everybody else tells me because i don't know i don't even know how to operate myself because my feelings mm-hmm. are telling me one thing but society's showing me another thing um and so that conditioning itself like this is where when the body says no actually comes into play is that when you can't say no to people your body says no for you because that conditioning of you know i don't i want to please people i want to make people happy but i feel like i'm the burden and so we take on this responsibility of trying to help other people or do everything for other people or make other people comfortable and we're exerting more stress and creating more internal issues to the point of our body slowly declines and and falls apart, kills itself, more or less. Mm-hmm. Actually, Joe Rogan just had somebody on the, I can't remember his name, Tyler. He's a former helicopter pilot, fighter helicopter. Sure. And he was ex- expressing the same views. Yeah. You know, it's... And it seems like a lot of the people in the service are these people that just want to help and please other people. Otherwise they're the burden. Yeah. It's, it's a, I I think it's remarkably more common. I think you look at therapists, you look at psychologists, psychiatrists, why did you get in the profession? You know, social workers, people that serve people Mm -hmm. essentially are going to potentially have this problem. Right. And then when you add on complicated medical issues like yourself it's only going to expand those those problems and i think i think it's not only an individual situation or issue it's a it's a societal issue it's because we're creating this by having these Mm -hmm. expectations of you know fred you need to be normal well you fucking can't right whatever that means right like you like if if i have this expectation of you being normal and i get upset when you're not what does that do to you? Right? Like that's, that's placing so much internal, internal stress that you can't come out and say, you know, Dylan, your version of normal is, is bullshit, right? Like you can't do that necessarily because I might have 12 people that say the same thing to you. And then like, we're societal beings. It's like, if you're the one person that's out, right. You look at all the people that are in and you're like, I'm the problem. Yeah. And, and I, act- I think with going off on too much of a tangent, yeah, our definition of what is normal has narrowed so much as a yeah. society that you're either side A or side B and almost nothing in between. Yeah. And that adds a whole nother layer of constant aggravation. Uh, I think the national pastime now is being um, disproportionately outraged at the smallest thing. Yeah. it's everybody's hobby <laughs> it's a great way to put it <laughs> yeah absolutely I, I it's i think yeah national pastime is uh is being a troll on the internet <laughs> mm-hmm. right yeah it's sad it, it's a struggle you know and it's it's a real i think it's something that we're going to be coming up against in the next decade of we're going to start, I feel like we're going to start addressing that issue because people are getting more and more annoyed with it, right? Like I see more Mm -hmm. and more discussion about it on, you know, from influencers that are, that are big, right? Where 
has never really been a major focus for, for certain influencers. Um, I think more and more people are just going to come out and be like, don't be a dick, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not and hard. stand up. Yeah. Uh, throw another Joe Roganism out there um, from the same interview. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, he said, there's a, an old adage that hard men lead to there being easy lives. Yeah. Easy lives. Yeah. I want to weak men. I've been talking about this a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to pull up the quote real quick, but keep, keep going with your thought. And uh, weak men lead to, you know, real problems and the real problems lead to the rise of hard and capable men again. It's a, it's a cycle. And we seem to be going through the weak men part of uh, the cycle. So hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've, I have almost a, almost a a critical view of this quote in in my mind, Mm -hmm. because it's, it's, you know, it, it, the idea is it, it sums up a stunningly pervasive cyclical vision of history. And so that's, that's the premise of this, um, because it's from a, a post-apocalyptic novel. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I agree with it and I disagree with it because exactly we are, we are in such an interesting moment in history where we have an unbelievable amount of self-awareness of ourselves. Right. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's hard times for everyone and there's, there's good times for everyone right now. Right. And when we have that self-awareness is like, we're, we're looking at potentially you could look at this and say, this is a hard time in human history. Right. You could, you could also say on the contrary, it's one of the best times in human history because we right. have the most abundance, we have the most self-awareness, we have the most amount of access to information, to money, to medical, uh, medical care, food, water, all of this stuff that we've never had access to before at such a scale. Um, and yet at the same time, one of the most important things is like, how do you define strong men and weak men? Because I think mm-hmm. that definition very much is changing and transitioning as we speak. You know, I look at right. the service, right? I look at how the army is changing right now. When I joined the military, I got punched in the chest when, by a drill sergeant. You could never do that now, right? Mm-hmm. And so does that, make, does that make me a strong man versus what the army's, you know, developing right now? I, I wouldn't say necessarily because there's, there's soldiers that I have now that were, that are emotionally more resilient than I was in 2008 when I joined, mm-hmm. because they have the ability to actually express their feelings because their parents actually taught them that. Right. I was never taught that. And so maybe physically I can handle more pain, but maybe emotionally they can handle more hardship. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know? And so, 
that that idea of strong men versus weak men is is a remarkably fluid conversation right now and mm-hmm. we don't i don't think we really know how to define it no and and it'll change over time and then you'll have freaks like jocko yeah right <laughs> you right. know who who's just like the entire package yeah uh, i agree I, I don't i don't know anybody who has listened to one of his podcasts or his interviews and said oh my god how can i not be like that guy or how can i be that guy you yeah. know that's their that's their new life goal but right. uh um it's uh it's a phenomenon but to further your point if we had had this pandemic 30 years ago it would have been so much worse you know our supply chains are so evolved right now so computerized mm-hmm. so efficient and they would have just collapsed yeah. even more than they have now. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to create the vaccines and whether you agree that they're vaccines or not vaccines, we wouldn't have had the, the computing right. power to run the models and stuff like that. It's, it's just a whole different scenario. It would have been a whole different level of hard. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine, imagine, what it would have been like 30 years ago to implement a uh, a shutdown in some in some capacity or or like a uh, a lockdown or anything like that it just would have been vastly different right i think access to the internet and access to social media has made this in many ways easier it, it's mm-hmm. there's 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 absolutely an argument to say it's been harder but i also think it's made it easier because i can I can do what I'm doing right now. I can call sure. you via video and be like, hey, Fred, I'm struggling, right? I have access to people that 30 years ago I would have had to call or, you know, what I've been afraid to call or, you know, I couldn't have texted them back then. And, you know, like everybody has their own version of expression and we have so many versions of expression available to us right now that I think that pandemic 30 years ago might've been a really painful awakening for some people of like, wow, this is what isolation is. This mm-hmm. is brutal. Yeah. I think suicides would have been way higher. I mean, it's tragic that they got as high as they, they did and the mental health issues would have been worse. Yeah. Um, so, and just more people would have died. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that was a, that was a long tangent, but I want to get back to your story. If you don't mind, (laughs) Um, this is good. I love, I love this. (laughs) I have no problem with this. Um, So I think you were right around um, and and maybe help me if I, if I forget, but you were right around the time where you were already diagnosed with type two diabetes. Yeah. So their standard, uh, treatment for type 2 diabetes is that it's a lifelong chronic condition and you'll never get rid of it. There's no way to, to cure it. And we know that's not true now. We knew it then. Um, so if you want to go into the uh, conspiracy end of things, into Area 51, you know, so much of our lives are being driven by the pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know it can be cured because. I have reversed my type two diabetes. And I'll, I'll tell you about that in, in a little bit. So I was figuring out how to recover from all this you know, trauma and I wasn't able to work. 
So I went back to my roots and it was exercise, try and lose weight and do whatever you can to keep your brain active because those things always help. You know, exercise is rarely bad for you. Learning is rarely bad for you. Losing mm-hmm. weight, rarely bad for you. So I did my best on my own to come up with, with my own systems. And I made a lot of progress. And then in 2013, the same thing started happening to me over and over again. I started randomly passing out, hitting my head, blah, blah, blah. And well, wait, I've got a pacemaker. The pacemaker keeps me alive. Uh, I'm 100% dependent on this pacemaker. Yeah. So if it stops, I stop. And I end up in the hospital again, and they can't figure out what's going on. And they realize that one of the leads, one of the wires from the pacemaker that takes the current to my heart has cracked. So usually if that happens, you know, there's sort of like a worldwide recall, like there's been a manufacturing defect and they'll, you know, have a couple of thousand of these around the world. No, I was the only one. excuse me so you know they they, again they weren't looking for something like that because they had no notice and they finally figured it out and uh, so they said well we've got to replace this so I go in for the replacement surgery and this is sort of like you know a wily coyote cartoon kind of like finally I think you know I got the roadrunner caught and then splat right you know again so um, I go in for surgery and it's a very cool little room. It's actually a lab as opposed to an operating theater. And they've got like this big scoreboard with all your vitals and everything. And the room is really cold. It's like 38 degrees. Jeez. Because the, they have to use this, I think it's called a fluoroscope so that they can see inside your body as they're doing the surgery. Yep. And that gets really hot. So they have to keep you frozen. And uh I'm, I'm watching the monitors and I'm getting very anxious. Um, they didn't tell me they were pinning me down. They also didn't tell me that you're actually awake for the surgery now. They used to put you under general and now it's just like going to the dentist. And so there's having trouble with this monitor and they're, you know, we can't see your vitals. And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't like this before. I'm liking it even less now. <laughs> And, and then they start to cut and they also don't tell you they're now using a laser scalpel. So you're sitting there in a really anxious position and then you smell your flesh burning as they cut you open. And then I know the feeling that happens when my heart stops, you get sort of like a little brain quake. I don't know if that's the brain, like doing whatever it can to, like, keep me alive, keep me alive. Yeah. But I just remember saying, oh, fuck, I'm gone. And then I was gone. The, uh, I guess they had moved the pacemaker or something in this whole process, and it disconnected the wire again. And uh, so I, I was code blue on the table. And, uh, you know, we all have these visions. And I think this is also part of the problem in medicine from watching all these TV shows and and movies about how, you know, if there's a medical emergency in eight seconds, like 
every exact person that needs to be there is on scene and every medication they need is on scene and every medical device is on scene. It, it certainly doesn't happen like that. I've, I've seen enough of these on both in the hospital wards and in my own situation. It's fucking bedlam. You know, people are screaming and swearing and they can't find things. And yeah, so I didn't remember them putting these things called pacing pads on me. So as opposed to the defibrillators, which are one shock, this is something that just keeps shocking you as you go um, to keep stimulate, simulate your heart beating. And I, I come to, and I know the surgical report says it was like 12 seconds later, but it sure felt like a lot longer than that. Right. And, and, you know, you're all disoriented. And I said, okay, I'm back. Like, whoever's doing this CPR or whatever on me, you can stop. And, you know, somebody says, shut the fuck up. We're trying to save your life. And then somebody else says, no, keep talking. So we know you're okay. And I'm like, well, whoever's making the decision, stop whatever you're doing to me. Cause you know, you're literally getting shocked and it like, it's like getting constantly kicked in the ribs. Yeah. It's really brutal. So eventually they decide, they need to put in a temporary pacemaker and they do that by threading a wire through your femoral artery. So that's your longest artery in the body and they go up through your groin. So conveniently, nobody thought to bring one to the operating theater. So they had to go find it. So they're like, where is it? Well, it's in the supply closet. There's only 3000 supply closets. Could you narrow it down kind of thing? So somebody finally brings one back and then the doctor said, well, where are the fucking leads? No. So they had to go back and get the leads and everything. In the interim, what they were supposed to have been doing is sterilizing my groin and putting some numbing agent in there. And they didn't. Oh my goodness. So when they, they went to insert this thing, scalpel and like that hurt. <laughs> it really hurt. And, uh, you know, it was uh, not the smoothest operation. And then they took me back to ICU. And because they weren't sure how well they had put this temporary pacemaker in, um, I wasn't allowed to move for like seven days because it could have popped out. And uh, then after seven days, they discovered I had no infection. So we were going to try again. So I said, hold on. <laughs> you know, we're going to do things a little differently this time. Um, you know, you're going to make sure that you don't use a laser scalpel. You're going to make sure I don't smell anything. You're going to give me some sort of sedation to get rid of all this anxiety. And, you know, possibly a different surgeon, please. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> So we went ahead with the operation and these are, you know, they do like 800,000 of these a year. So it's a pretty common operation now. And it's supposed to take like 20, 25 minutes. And I notice I'm falling asleep in there and waking up. And then I wake up and I notice that the clocks moved like an hour and a half. And I'm like, oh crap. And I see the doctor, he's on a video call with other doctors around the world 
trying to figure out how to do something. And I say, what's going on? He says, never mind. We're trying to save your life. And uh, so what it was is they couldn't thread the lead through the vein to get it into my heart. And they didn't tell me at the time. I learned subsequently my vein had collapsed. Jeez. So they think, and this is more area 51 stuff, that in my original 2009 surgery, something went wrong and the vein collapsed. And that's what led to the lead cracking and causing this subsequent mess. Jeez. So, so um, they eventually figured it out how, I don't know. And uh, so stayed in ICU for a few more days and they release you to the world again with no treatment plan. Right. There's like, you know, nothing to address anything that's happened to you neurologically. It's, it's kind of mind boggling. That's, I mean, that's just, you know, when I look at that, it's just, that's trauma. I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. medical trauma. Like that's one thing, one of those things that is, quite rarely discussed nowadays in terms of like PTSD. It's like medical trauma, like mm -hmm. all of that. I mean, if, if, you know, I've, I think I've been quite lucky. I've had, I've had three ACL surgeries, two reconstructions mm -hmm. and both surgeons walked me through the whole process beforehand without me even asking, like, I didn't even have to advocate for myself. They walked me through those, those surgeries. And obviously reconstructions are a lot more common and have been throughout, um, you know, the past 20 years than, than something like that, mm -hmm. because they're just so common. Um, but it just seems like good medical practice to say, this is what's about to happen to you. So you're prepared, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and give you some kind of choice in knowing that or not, you know, is, is, it just seems like that's a good idea. And it's, it, it's baffling to me, you know, from my experience, because I've had good experiences to realize that there's people out there going through such traumatic kind of situations as this, that people don't explain this to you beforehand. Mm -hmm. that, that's traumatic. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, living with that is, I can't imagine that's been easy to kind of process afterwards. It, it hasn't been. Um, and I don't want this to come across as me just bashing the medical industry um, because it's a continuum, right? You get your, yeah. you know, superstars and then you've got the, yeah, the lower just... end of like, how the fuck did you get the job? <laughs> <laughs> right. it, it happens everywhere. You could bash any industry yeah. with that. Yeah. So my current medical team, I've got like six specialists, um, are are pretty top notch the um okay. but along the way you just have to you know my parents had a really hard life and i guess i've got some of their overcoming adversity and you know strong resilience gene um just quite good for you and <laughs> yeah and it you know i mean nobody teaches you how to be resilient no nope. uh, you know we we assume kids you know when they go to school that they know how to do homework most of us don't. I know I didn't. Uh, we know how to communicate well. We know how to apologize. I mean, it's just not a skill set that we put a premium on. 
and we probably should. We should probably also teach kids to do their taxes and manage money, but that's a whole other, whole other issue. Right. Um, so I guess in that regard, I had this keep chugging along kind of personality and see where it gets me. Um, and it was going okay until 2018. And this happened again. So, you know, I've had like these one in a billion experiences that, you know, the doctors really weren't prepared to look for them. And so it's not like, you know, on the shows you see like house where, you know, you've got this super genius sitting there and, you know, he's got his, his dedicated team. Um, most hospitals don't work like that. Right. And, and, uh, so I went in for surgery number four, I guess, and they decided, screw the old pacemaker. Uh, we're just going to put in a whole new unit. So this one's my initial ones are on the left side of my chest. We're going to go right side, put in the new unit, take the old unit out, and you'll be happy and healthy for another 15 years. Mm -hmm. So something happened during this surgery. Uh, I actually told him, I don't want to be awake for this. If you guys are going to kill me again, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> I feel like if, if people heard that out of context, they just wouldn't understand, but it, it makes sense. It makes so much <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah. So, so we go for the surgery and I like my, my pacemaker surgeon. He's a great guy. He's always accessible and very creative. And of course, so, I don't remember the exact times, but say I would, my surgery was scheduled for 1 p.m. And when I started to wake up out of the anesthetic, I noticed it was like 5.30 or 6. And again, 25-minute surgery, some, even in my day's state, I was, something didn't go right. <laughs> and of course, something didn't go right. Of course. So, so they couldn't install both of the leads that I needed to fully replace it. So I actually don't have an explanation as to why that happened, but um, it happened. So they had to figure out, well, how are we gonna keep him alive? He obviously can't keep going with the one that keeps failing. Yeah. So they actually rigged up a system where when the initial the original pacemaker craps out the second one senses it and kicks in interesting yeah so it is but it's a system that takes a while to get refined because mm -hmm. you have to keep playing with the sensors so in the interim i was still having these syncopes where this would stop and then there might be like three, four, five seconds until this one would understand that and kick in. Yeah. So you still get these holy, yeah, you know, crap, because your heart does stop for the four or five seconds. Um, and again, that's just so unnerving because you don't know yeah. if it's going to kick back in. Right. And you don't know if you're going to fall yeah. and or you're going to fall down the stairs. Can I drive? No, I mean, doctors told me I could drive, but I said, 
I, I don't feel safe driving. I'm just going to ride my bike until you guys get this figured out. So it took probably like three years to get it dialed in so that it kicks in like immediately. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the adventure. I mean, that, that's just so much, there's so much anxiety, you know, a, a powerful anxiety with, with that. Like you are literally, you're, you're a st- you're five seconds away from death, you know, and mm-hmm. every single time. And like, you know, it like, that's incredibly powerful and real, uh, that has to be incredibly traumatizing in some way of like, even after those three years of kind of figuring things out, you probably still look back and are like, is it going to work? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, I could, it may stop tomorrow and I, yeah, it's gotta be hard. Well, I, I'm going to put some icing on the cake. Of course, uh, of course you are. I, I would expect the, nothing less from you at this point, Fred. <laughs> the original pacemaker that was replaced um, the battery's almost dead. So within the year, I have to go in for another replacement surgery. So let's, let's, you hope, know, let's hope this one is 25 minutes long and it's good. Well, we can, but, you know, looking at the other side of things, I've still got a book to write. Yeah, you do. <laughs> And the more of these misadventures that happen, the more book I have to write. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to ask you about that with, mm-hmm. with all of this stuff going on, right? Like, you know, having that, that kind of right hemisphere issue um, and having obviously all of these complications happening, how does that actually impact writing a book? I know like for me, it's incredibly hard to just write a book and, and I don't have all that, all those complications and in, in that, you know, the, the brain injuries, I don't have that stuff. And it's hard enough for me to write a book. How does it impact you for writing? Um, that's interesting. Um, learning to keyboard was literally a game changer for me because before that, when I had to write things out by hand, I was very stop and start and cross that out. And like it was, Writing essays was torturous for me in high school. Yeah, I can imagine. So now you can just cut and paste and organize your thoughts much more easily. Mm-hmm. So that's one big thing. The second thing is, it's not like I'm going through a creative writing process where yeah. I'm trying to originate ideas and, and flush them out. This is just when I have the appropriate memory, I can jot it down and then worry about making it grammatically correct or funny or tragic or dark or whatever. Um, And I I try and make the book a little bit humorous because there is some pretty heavy, dark stuff in here. Of course. And um, it's a lot of it is just my memory that comes back and flashes. And also my therapist is, an immaculate note taker like she's probably got a stack of notes on me you know this high and uh so if i can't remember something i can just go back to her and say do you remember when and stuff like that i remember once asking her what do you remember from 
when you first heard about my story and she said uh, I was just amazed that you're any degree of functional at all yeah like I've never heard a story like this right. and you know that's a therapist who's been in the business for 30 years yeah. and even now if I have something bothering me and I end up going to emerge or something because that's what the doctors say you're in such a freaky position if you think you've got a headache that's not normal you go to emergency yeah. and uh, and I tell the doctors I have two pacemakers running simultaneously they don't believe me uh, I, I was told once I don't know if this is urban myth hospital myth that there's like eight people in the world that are hooked up like me and uh, so doctors don't believe me I'm like You've got my file. That's another thing doctors don't do. They don't read the files. Right. You know, okay, go back to this day. You could say inserted second pacemaker. Like, yeah, no, I don't want to do it. So it's, a, it's an interesting experience. Yeah, I, it's, it's crazy. It's, I mean, you know, listening to the story, I like, you know, obviously you, you sent me a bio and I read through it and I'm like, this is, this is nuts. But hearing you talk about it is just another, it's another level, right? Like you're right. Like there is, there's nothing like this, right? There's nothing, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I, and I suppose like, when, you know, going back to the original question of like writing, how does it impact writing? It makes a lot of sense now. Like for my book, it wasn't just a memoir right? My book was, there was more creative understanding because I'm trying to help people understand how to overcome some of this stuff that, that you mm-hmm. and I have gone through in, in different capacities. Um, and I wasn't just writing a memoir. I was, I was really trying to formulate creative ideas of this is how I did it. This is how I've watched other people do it. And putting those two together takes a lot of effort. Um, but having that memoir is actually, it would make sense. It'd be a lot easier to just, Hey, this, this is what happened to me. So write down all mm-hmm. the things that you've, that have happened to me. Um, I've done that. And that is actually quite, quite simple. Um, I am curious, like when, when do you think it'll be, you know, finished? Um, it's sort of finished right now. Um, it's sitting with the editor and I have to raise some money to get the professional editing done and the artwork and stuff. So I'm not sure if I'm going to run a Kickstarter. I think I'm going to run a, a Kickstarter. Sure. Um, Cause you know, it's, if I had been working all this time, the money wouldn't be a problem, but I'm, I'm pretty financially depleted right now. So the money has to come from somewhere else. I had somebody who was going to fund it and then COVID hit and his business took a real hit. So he had to back out. Yeah. So somehow this is going to get published absolutely and, as it should yeah. I, and maybe it'll evolve into a speaking tour um and does so. this all tie into the question you're going to ask me at the end yeah absolutely and we can we can speed up that process if you want like we've i feel like we've gotten through most of your story um yeah. is is there anything else um you know, I guess, I guess, where yeah. are you, where are you now outside of the book? Like, what are you trying to kind of get to? What are, you know, what are your goals? What are you, what are you still struggling with? You know, where, where are you right now? 
Well, I think I've got a clear purpose in life. So if you're a God believing person um, of whatever God you believe in, uh, you believe, okay, once you have a near death experience, death experience, whatever you want to call it, fine. You have like 30, 40, 50 of these. God's giving you a pretty clear message that you're not done yet. <laughs> and, and you've got some purpose and it's up to us to figure out what that purpose is, whether yeah. right or wrong. And I think my purpose is to tell my story and let people know they're not alone. Uh, we're all going to face some type of adversity. I might not be walking in your shoes, but I'm going to be walking in shoes right beside you to some degree. And we should try and draw strength from each other's adventures. You know, there's nothing super special about me, despite what my mom says. And, uh, you know, if I can get through this, most people can hopefully get through their adventures. Uh, but mindset is so important. Yeah. And, you know, you talked before about not knowing the root causes of so many of our illnesses. So I'm going to do a quick book promote here, if that's okay. Go for it. Absolutely. So uh, before my last surgery in 2018, I went into my doctor's office, uh, the cardiologist, and he walks in and throws this book at me, not this one, but another one called The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. And it's about intermittent fasting. So this current one, Fast, Feast, Repeat, is a New York Times bestseller by Jen Stevens. And I'd recommend that people look into this book. And of course, if you try intermittent fasting, always do so with the guidance of your medical professionals, because although I've had enough experience to be a doctor, I'm not actually a doctor. Yeah. Um, so my cardiologist says, buy this book, read this book, do this book, after you get buy-in from all our other you know, medical team. Sure. And Initially, people have known about intermittent fasting for hundreds of years. I mean, it's a very biblical thing. Most major religions have fasting components. Um, what our current medical paradigm is on intermittent fasting is it's mostly for weight loss. And it is, but they're just starting to catch up to how it starts activating all these subsystems in your body that get rid of inflammation, balance your hormones, uh, initiate all these um, epigenetic subsystems and, and heal your body to unbelievable degrees. And I now attribute the large majority of my recovery to intermittent fasting. Uh, things that the neurological healing um, so you can go to people like Dr. Mark Matson from Johns Hopkins, who talks about how intermittent fasting works on your nervous system, um, helps regenerate nerves, gets rid of scar tissue in the brain, um, replaces neural pathways that have been damaged and recreates them. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And I could go on and on and on, but I know you only have a certain amount of time for the podcast. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make sure there will be a link to that 
to that book in the description for people to people to check it out. I will check it out. Um, but yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Fred, this is this has been it's it's incredible to hear your story, and it absolutely needs to be a Thank book. You. And so, make sure you finish that. If there's anyone that has heard this story at this point. I'll, I'll make sure there's a link, you know, by the time this comes out, I imagine you'll have either a Kickstarter or GoFundMe to, to get this kind of kicked off, or at least I'll get you a link to find Fred, um, connect with him. And maybe, you know, certainly a lot of people have helped me get my book off the ground. Um, mm -hmm. I imagine that there'll be a lot of people that will be able to help you. Um, if you're hearing this, it would be incredibly valuable to have your book and your legacy left behind for for whenever it is um you put it out there so i hopefully mm -hmm. hopefully someone hears this and and is able to to help you out with that i hope it is that's the case but i gotta ask you a question before we before we call this call this done if there was one message you could leave the world fred what would it be mm -hmm. Joy is the, uh, sorry, comparison is the thief of joy. Probably heard that before. And uh, joy is not like our current supply chain. There is no finite supply of joy. It's, it's out there for you to grab. And the more joy you can put into your life, even though it seems like there shouldn't be, the easier and better and more successful your journey is going to be. And... Um, there's also a psychiatrist, psychologist from Holocaust days named Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. And he went through the camps. Yeah. And uh, I, I think his most famous premise is if you have hope, you can get through anything. Yeah. Yeah. So allow yourself hope and joy. Man's, man's search for meaning mm -hmm. is, is one of Viktor Frankl's probably most well-known works i would imagine mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. definitely definitely something to look into but yeah you know fred thank you for that thank you for for sharing your story thank you for for sharing your wisdom and your words um my pleasure and uh whenever you do get that book published feel free to reach out come back on the show um and talk about it you know share it with people and we'll we'll have a deeper conversation about that and and you know what you've, what you've gone through, I'm sure with your, your next surgery. Um, I hope that is flawless as, as mm -hmm. best it can be. Um, I hope it goes as well as it can possibly go. Cause you've got, Thank you. clearly you've got much more to do. Um, and that can't be the end. Um, but again, Fred, thank you for, thank you for being on the show. Um, My pleasure. If, you, if you've listened to this, to this, as long as you have now, I, I appreciate you. I, I thank you for, for staying in, staying in, in touch with us, listening to me and Fred have, uh, go on off, go off on all our tangents. And, uh, I think we will see you next time on the Dylan experience. So thank you. Of course too easy. <laughs> <laughs>